welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, I'm talking with legendary Republican pollster Lance Torrance, namesake of the Torrance Group, founded in 1977 and still going strong. Lance's time in campaigns goes back to Goldwater in 64, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and at the state level, helping turn Texas from deep blue Democratic to a reliable red state, pulling for the Republican who beat Bill Clinton in Arkansas in 1980, part of the team in Mitch McConnell's 1984 Senate upset. In addition to winning individual races, he's also one of the intellectual architects of the more populist wing of the Republican Party, well predating Donald Trump, that helped the party find success beyond its traditional upper class country club roots. Lant is a legit founding father of modern day polling, and it was great to talk with him today. Lance Torrance, what are some of your earliest political memories? It'd have to be when I was in college finishing my senior year at Washington Lee University in Virginia, even though I'm a Dallasite, a lot of Texas boys went up to Virginia, as you know, to college. Somebody gave me a copy of the um, Conscience of a Conservative that Barry Goldwater had just written. I majored in European history, which is a far cry. It was modern European history, but still a far cry from American campaigns. And I read that little short book, and suddenly I got very excited about government and what it should and shouldn't be doing. And because of that, it tripped me into volunteering for the Goldwater campaign out of college. My career took off in a totally different direction. By the way, in Texas, we didn't even have a one-in-one-half party system back in the 60s. We had a one-party system, basically run by Johnson and John Connolly. There weren't many Republicans around. When Goldwater somewhat surprisingly won the nomination with his California primary over Rockefeller, the state party, which consisted, I think, of three people, started calling people that volunteered and everything else at some level to see if they'd like to finish out the year working for the presidential campaign. Of course, I jumped at it. And I was made the director of research for the Goldwater for President Committee, and I guess at age 23 or something. And my life took off in a totally different direction. It was quite something. We know about Goldwater as the icon of American conservatism. Did you spend any time up close and personal with Senator Goldwater? Well, I couldn't have a 23. Later on, when I go to Washington, D.C., I was promoted, I guess you'd say, from the work I'd done in the 64, 65. Remember, John Tower was a big election and caused the state of Texas to finally start moving toward red. The preservation of that Senate seat was incredibly important. And so I got awarded to go to Washington, work for the RNC, and I got to meet Goldwater two or three times on a very subordinate basis. Jack Cashley wrote a the definitive biography of Goldwater. He turned out to be somebody I'd known, and he interviewed me about 20 times, I think. And all through that book, he's got me quoted far beyond my real knowledge of Goldwater, but he was always trying to get the perspective of what Goldwater did to change so many young people's lives when they got into politics. Somewhat like Kennedy would bring in a lot of people into the Democratic Party, but Goldwater brought in a lot of young conservatives that really were challenging the system, pretty much as a lone wolf in terms of Goldwater. That psychological framework got into my brain very early. Goldwater did a lot of things that made me feel comfortable about the future American politics, even though he lost. And by the way, what a great way to start your political career at age 23 is to be beaten as soundly as Goldwater was. But was interesting to me in Texas, people were contributing $1,500 to Goldwater well beyond the, the day of the election, meaning a lot of little people were getting behind Goldwater. And in Texas, money kept coming in and kept coming in. And I was asked, along with others, 
How about going full-time for the Texas Republican Party? We've gotten a lot of money from this campaign. John Tower's election is up and coming, and we, we need to finally start building a staff of campaign operatives in the state. And so I went ahead and took that choice. Goldwater started it, Tower continued it, and I guess Nixon winning in 72 uh, helped me go even further. And so in 64, you had that role in Texas, director of research in Texas for Goldwater. But by 68, you were director of research for the entire Nixon 68 operation. Can you paint a picture of what that is like? Not quite. I was still with the RNC and everything at the RNC was converted by 68 into getting Nixon elected. I was assistant director of research, did a lot of things that I think helped me out personally, I guess, looking back. We developed an information retrieval system on everything Hubert Humphrey had ever said in his life. And by the way, that's a lot, if you knew anything about how Humphrey talked. Microfilmed it all, set it up. So every time Humphrey made a speech, the truth squad that followed Humphrey in those days, which I think was Hugh Scott out of Pennsylvania, the senator, they would run a check on everything that Humphrey had said in the past. And within an hour, we would be shooting them other kinds of quotations. He'd made some of them diametrically opposed to what he's saying now and give it to the press at the same time Humphrey had just walked off the stage. So anyway, it was a very uh, innovative, high-tech thing we did in 68, thanks to Eastman Kodak. And from that, everybody who joined the the next administration, you know, by January 69, I wanted to go back and uh, teach government. So I was staying a little longer in D.C. And the next thing I know, they promoted me to director research for the whole thing. To this day, I'm still the youngest director research that the party's ever had. But that's only because everybody else was in the administration by then. And by the end of 69, I got promoted one more time to the U.S. Census Bureau, which really changed my life. Why was that an inflection point for you? Well, you can't really learn about government just being involved in campaigns every two years, every four years. So I wanted to see how government really ran. Once again, I think I'm going to be teaching government at a high level someday. I had gone back and gotten a master's degree in vote behavior, which was very unusual, by the way, at American University. They were tied into the Survey Research Center. Quantitative data was used out of that, whereas Georgetown and GW were still traditional government, not necessarily political science at that time. And so the more scientific approach to politics uh, was at AU, and I got that particular degree, did one more year, thanks to some good friends who appointed me a Kennedy Fellow at the Kennedy Institute of Politics at Harvard, and that kind of culminated that. But the census probably got me to the Harvard Kennedy Center because there was so much politics finally developing and erupting over the 70 census. And there I was sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director of the census for the next three and a half years. I probably learned more politics being in the Census Bureau. I was a liaison with the White House, liaison with state chairman, congressional relations person, etc. So man, I was really at the forefront of the 70 census. It was pretty much a Democratic Party enclave that had never had anybody check anything out going on, whether it was partisan or bipartisan. We know the Census Bureau thinks that they're extremely nonpartisan, but they really weren't. For example, McGovern had a weekly lunch meeting with Census Bureau executives, what to frame for some of their messages. And the U.S. House, controlled by the Democrats, I remember they sent out a letter to Democrats saying, don't worry about Republicans being in, we can get anything going out of the Bureau, because we still have control and networks in it and so forth. Well, I made sure that really didn't happen and uh, became very competitive, very combative, hard-nosed about American politics at the Bureau of the Census, (laughs) not necessarily the RNC, because I saw how policy was shaping politics. And whoever had the best data shaped the policy that shaped politics. So I spent a lot of time understanding demographic trends at the Bureau, helping out a lot of people in their redistricting needs. 
we put together a pretty hardcore show of force. But because I had done that, a lot of people thought I should share some of those inside experiences at the Kennedy Center, which, you know, that's one of their famous motifs for the Kennedy Institute of Politics is to go beyond the newspapers. You have government officials, political officials all meeting together, breaking bread and finding out what's going on, because that was one of Jack Kennedy's missions to make a better government, fusing all these groups together. So anyway, I was brought to Harvard for a year, but it was kind of like my, my doctorate, because after that, I went straight to Reagan's polling firm in California. And so that is your intersection and your entree to the world of political polling. What is the Republican landscape like for political polling in the early, mid-1970s as you're cutting your teeth? Who were who are the dominant figures? Obviously, it's a much shorter list than one would contend with today. That's exactly right. In fact, there's probably somewhat of a problem in that there's too many. But that's a really a good point because when I had to choose which firm I wanted to go to, sitting up there in, in Cambridge. Could have gone with Teeter, that's market opinion research out of Detroit, or in California with the Reagan firm, which was Dick Worthen, Vince Baraba, and I chose California. There was only two major firms. As we went along through the decade, there'll be a little regional firm pop up here and there like Bob Moore did in the Oregon, but pretty minor. And so when I started my company, I was going to develop an equivalent to a MOR or DMI, the two big firms, focused on a national marketplace from day one. I had been all across the country, of course, in the last few years, so I could feel good about that. And I hired people, ended up with five PhDs on the firm a few years later. So we really went after the national market, specializing in the Sunbelt states, using Kevin Phillips' book, The Emerging Republican Majority. And I was very close with him personally. I wanted to actually develop a company that fit into his broad strategy. And the South was, I'm jumping ahead here, but the South was completely wide open. The California and Detroit firms didn't know much about the South at all. So I saw that opening. DMI was supposed to set up a Houston office when I went out there, but they slowly reneged over at a time and put a new office in D.C. because they were going for bigger projects, bigger sales contracts. So the South was wide open. I moved to Houston, the so-called belt buckle of the Sun Belt. Everything from California to Virginia to Florida, that would be my key marketing area. It turns out that that whole area was just flipping by the day, more Republican, as you know, little by little. I was able to get a lot of contracts from a lot of congressional candidates, a lot of who didn't win, but they started the process of gradual realignment. And that would have been in 78 and 18. That's how I got to Houston by way of Cambridge, California, and finally here. I was going to get to this later, but I think this is probably a good time to get to this. There's a profile about you from the mid-80s in the National Journal written by Ron Brownstein. And I want to ask about a specific line here that I think tees up what you just described. The quote from that profile is, what gives Torrance his influence is that to an unusual degree for a pollster, he has developed and articulated his own vision of how the political world works. In the next sentence, Larry Sabato calls you a, quote, philosopher, a pollster. So what was your political philosophy this profile is getting at? I'm not so sure that's so much describing me as it, how it describes the rest of the field, because most of these people that were involved in numbers, developing numbers into strategy and strategy into campaign action, were just that, just numbers. I felt that the uh, data and the strategy opportunities south was wide open, so why not? I felt 
that if you're going to win, we're not going to win with establishment Republicans meeting in country clubs like a lot of them do in the country. I knew we would have to start from scratch, and that meant a lot of converting strategies of Democrat to Republican or Reagan Democrats, if you will, the Blue Dog Democrats, all the various things that we describe sometimes people in midstream between parties. The reason he probably mentioned all that was if you're going to become a Republican majority, you're going to have to convert a lot of people into the Republican Party, not wait for them to reach maturation at 18 or 20 something. I hurt the Democrats pretty hard in the South. Number one, I was in the South full time. I could be in any campaign within a couple hours. None of this flying in from New York two weeks later. Secondly, I knew how to get the conservative white Democrat to start thinking Republican. We developed a ticket splitting theory that I'd helped co-author with Walt DeVries a long time ago on how to get people to split their ticket if you're in a minority Republican area. And it was quite successful. We knew the issues that it took to get a lot of these suburbanites to finally start saying it's okay to vote Republican. We used the ticket splitting stratagem plus some ideology on conservatism with white Democrats. So I developed a, call it a recode in our data. So the, the minute I get anything back, that is all the top lines, all the questions, without doing anything more, I would run this one particular computer recode against all the data. And I'd probably say 95% of what I needed to do, I found in that one recombined variable that I would build. And that was built around, and anybody said they were Republican to vote behavior, behavior question, they were Republican. We then segmented out white conservative Democrats, segmented moderate to liberal white Democrats. And then obviously African-Americans are blacks. And later we even added Hispanics in some places. So if I had those segments and ran it against all the top lines, I knew exactly what we needed to do in, within that day. So I used that to go after white concerted Democrats and ticket splitters. I didn't mention that, but they were also a key segment. And we never allowed independents to uh, confuse the data. People hide in the independent bracket. And that's why we wrote that book on ticket splitting back in 72, was that there was a lot more support out there if you knew how to get it. Most of the American voter out of University of Michigan, all the academic treatises were always basically saying, if you have a high independent group and a strong majority in the Democratic group, there's no hope for the Republican Party. Well, I've spent my life making sure that that was bad, bad research. And I was finding ways to get to 51% through other alternative mechanisms, such as vote behavior, that is ticket splitting. We had a certain number of white concerted Democrats we had to have in certain races, doing a lot of tracking research nightly and measuring everything against those segments. And if I saw the white concerted Democrat number that we needed, let's say we needed 35% of them to make a win and it had dropped below 30%, I called the campaign. We went through the verbatims on what was causing it, changed our media for that group right away. So that's kind of what I did. I became a, a warrior, if you will, on the front lines, but with some really powerful insights based upon that vote behavior recombination that I used for all the data. I wouldn't call it a philosophy. I had a, an engineer's view of what it was going to take to get to 51. And I measured it by tracking every night the last six weeks or four weeks of a campaign to make sure we got to those right formula. Thinking specifically about the South, I grew up in the two-party South. I'm very familiar with the two-party South. If you're just coming of age to now, if you're in your early mid-20s, you maybe have known nothing other than a deep red South, occasionally a Florida, lately a Georgia, Virginia. There, there are some exceptions, but you think of the South as pretty red-leaning. 
What should people understand about the residual Democratic strength in the South in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s that made it such a difficult path? What were you having to overcome in the South that maybe wouldn't be apparent if you're only familiar with today's politics? Keep in mind, when I came in in 64, one of the biggest Democratic majorities ever, by 66, we were given a lifeline in the Republican Party, particularly in the South. I think that was Thurman as well as Tower. And then suddenly things started changing once Nixon developed a prescribed Southern strategy. And one of the first things he did, 69, when he came in, was to give an executive order that we were no longer going to punish the South. It's well beyond 1876 now. And they weren't going to allow government to try to in effect, discriminate against the South by doing discriminatory type studies. South started changing then, but the Republican Party was still a Midwestern party. Yes, there was this Reagan outlier situation, which surprised just about every Republican east of the Mississippi River that he got the nomination, but it was long in coming. The Republican Party was definitely Midwestern and Northeastern, had very little knowledge of the South. Now, what happened was, give Ronald Reagan a lot of credit, give a lot of credit to the policy differentiations that the Democratic Party was. I remember reading Tom Etzel's book saying that the Democrats quoted them that they knew they were going to take a punch on going wholehearted on civil rights, having moving the party toward African-Americans almost 100 percent, but they thought they could withstand it. They had no idea that the flip would be like 100 percent of a flip, not just about a 20 percent flip. They got caught short on that. If you look at long term history, that the um, African-American vote sitting out there ready to be taken by the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party took that stance that left open the territory of rural South, small exurban Southern cities that felt that they had been undone by the Democratic Party. Robert Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey and Sergeant Shriver, these weren't good old Southern Democrats they were used to in the Democratic Party. So they began to look for alternatives, and Nixon played right to it and brought them all into the party. By 72, he had done it in four years. Since then, the Republican Party has just been feeding off of something that's been in place since 1965. And secondly, the Democrats basically evacuated. They've retreated to such an extent. I think we have 24 statewide public official offices in the state of Texas. Not a single one's a Democrat. The Democrats don't have a rural base to work with like they did back in the old days with Rayburn and Johnson. They have no rural base. They have some bases to power here and there, but they can't carry the whole state very well any longer. So the Republicans took what was open and took it very well. And I do want to ask about some some individual races. And 1980 is known as Ronald Reagan wins a landslide, ousts Jimmy Carter, a whole wave of Senate wave that was visited on Democrats. And you were neck deep into that. But I actually wanted to ask you about a 1980 race. There was a governor's race. Your client won a big upset in Arkansas's governor's race. Can you talk a little bit about the 1980 Arkansas governor's race, how you won that upset? And then also what you observed about the Democratic candidate in that race, who was uh, very then very early in his political career? You're talking about Bill Clinton, of course. Well, keep in mind that Arkansas, even today, is kind of below the radar. There was a lot of research being done all through the South in 80. The biggest races were not in Arkansas. I do recall being asked to do some statewide public opinion polling in Arkansas by the RGA in D.C. and some other consultants. What had happened was Clinton had brought in most of his McGovern friends to run Arkansas. 
I think he was only 28 or something. And they ran it from an ivory tower. It was beginning to make a lot of the rural ticket splitting, you might say, Democrats upset. And one of them, I think, had to do with an extra uh, license fee on pickup trucks, which really bothered a lot of rural Arkansas people. He also got in with Jimmy Carter pretty strong on some of those uh, Miralitos, I think they were called, that came out of Cuba. He was trying to make some national credits, I guess, with the Democratic Party and said they could put those evacuees in Arkansas. Uh, There were a whole number of little crazy issues. We ran a conservative white Democrat who became a Republican named Frank White. He was head of the uh, Economic Something Council in Arkansas. It took a lot of doing with the Republican Party. You still didn't think there was much chance in Arkansas. By the third survey we'd done there, we showed that there was a path to winning. And very late in the campaign where some money shifted to Arkansas for governor. But keep in mind, everybody was interested in the presidency and the Senate, not governorships. I got a call about eight in the morning from Frank White, said, you can't believe this, but I won last night and what do I do next? So it was a complete shock that Frank White had won, but he did because he looked like an Arkansas white concerted Democrat who just had to be on the Republican label. Hillary and Bill had gone too far left for that state too quickly. And uh, I had to give a talk at the University of Arkansas and was allowed to take some of the post-election data that we had done in Arkansas, thanks to the RGA. For academic reasons, they allowed me to give some of the data. One of the post-election pieces of data we had in our, our survey was a lot of Arkansas Democrats didn't like the idea that Hillary Rodham didn't like to take Bill's last name. So it showed up in the data after the election. It was one of the four or five things that they didn't like about the Clintons. After that talk was over, a lady walked down into this kind of an auditorium-type classroom, big one, and said, uh, you all ran a, a very fine campaign. You should be congratulated, and then walked away. And I turned to the professor that was leading the uh, discussions. I said, who was that? He said, well, that was Hillary Clinton. I said, really? Well, it was either the next day or the next week, the paper reported that Hillary decided to change her name to Hillary Rodden Clinton, took Bill's name and was cleaning it up so they could run again, just to show you how precise Hillary was from day one. And what did you observe about the Bill Clinton 2.0 by the time he's running to have this restoration in 1982? What was different about that version? Well, he did a beautiful job, actually. I'm told that Dick Morris kind of took over at this point and did a mail culpa advertising wave, I think, in March of 81, which is pretty interesting, which shows you how much money he still had from that losing campaign. But he said, "Um, I didn't listen to people. Uh, I'm going to listen to them more in the future. I'm going to do certain things here that really have to do with Arkansas and not the national. Got himself resuscitated or refreshed. Frank White turned out to be much more evangelical than we had known at the time. Remember, we didn't know him very well when he ran, made some mistakes, and it didn't take long for 82, which was a big Democratic year anyway in the country. I think there were about 11 Republican governors who lost in 82. Bill Clinton got back in office, but he he was going to steer a very different course from then on. He'd been blistered, paid for it, apologized, and then went on. And I've heard a previous guest on this podcast, uh, Charlie Black, He tells the story that only two people believed that Mitch McConnell was going to become a U.S. senator in 1984. Uh, They were you and Mitch McConnell. This is another famous upset, obviously massive implications for the future that endure today, of course. McConnell, one of the most powerful leaders in Washington. Can you tell the story of Mitch McConnell's 1984 Senate upset? interesting uh, that you ask, particularly in today's situation. McConnell's 
campaign for the U.S. Senate was totally different in that he was a technocrat in a political sense, not lovable and not like a mayor of a small town who shook everybody's hand, more of a technocrat. He was the uh, county administrator of Jefferson County there in Louisville, which is pretty strong, but mainly a Democratic area. So he had it working for him that he was not typical Republican. He was more pragmatic politician, if not an engineer. He came from a Democratic area, so he would not be beaten as badly there if he were another type of Republican. He brought in a lot of interesting people. You have to give McConnell credit. He brought in Ailes, my company, and a number of other fairly young and up-and-coming warrior types and brought us in, believe it or not, in early 81. Remember, this is an 84 election. So we were doing polling in Kentucky almost three years in advance of that Senate race, so much so that we developed a really team esprit de corps well early, where the 82 election didn't bother us at all. We kept going toward 84. McConnell knew good research. He knew good messaging. He wasn't a natural politician. He had gone to University of Louisville for a law degree, University of Arkansas, undergraduate, whatever. He'd done everything right as a technocrat, basically admired John Sherman Cooper and more moderate Republicans. He wanted to be a new, young, moderate Republican. Well, guess what? You're not going to win that state, which was three to one Democratic registration, if you don't get the white conservative Democrat over to your side. We had a certain percentage we had to have. We watched the Republican percentage wrapped that up really early, getting 95% Republican support. We were winning the uh, two-thirds of the ticket-splitting voters, which typically were suburban, middle-aged, educated, wanted to get somebody else in there besides the good old conservative, good old boy type. Yeah, the incumbent, Democratic incumbent, sort of an old-school, conservative, rural, Democrat, D. Huddleston. Right. By the way, I had enough time before that election, as you can guess, where I actually went and listened to some of the speeches he gave to NAM and some other groups where he was paid to give these speeches. Speeches that would later become infamous. That's correct. This is kind of interesting. I don't think many people know this except Roger and I and a few others. But uh, I went over to New Orleans for something. There's a Senate race, and I noticed that Huddleston was giving the dinner speech at the NAM conference in New Orleans. So I stayed overnight, got myself invited, and took notes and wrote it up to McConnell's people that Huddleston was going to be really tough to beat. He's a good old conservative Democrat. There is not enough ticket splitting young people enough to overcome that. And secondly, he's on one of the major committees in the U.S. Senate, might have been Foreign Affairs, something like that, where he would always say, I can't say anything about this because it's classified, but we're doing such and such in the country around the world. In other words, he had a little way of putting a bit of sugar on every time he gave a speech about how insider he was and how much knowledge about the world he knew, which plays well in a more or less backwoods Kentucky environment in those days. So uh, I suggested this was going to be pretty tough. And I also suggested that I found out that he had given several other speeches kind of like this. And it was some staffer at the Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee reviewed my memorandum. As I understand it, he said, I wonder how many times Huddleston has given speeches like this around the country and how much money he was making. In those days, you could get a nice stipend of five or $10,000 for giving a speech to something like the National Chamber of Commerce. He decided to take a look at where he had been and then matched it up against votes on some of those days. And so that memo worked its way up to McConnell that there was money being made by Huddleston outside of the Senate. And they found not many, but just enough votes here and there that could have been considered pretty strong for needing a vote for the state of Kentucky that he wasn't there. And that was given to Ailes, and then Ailes took it there and it went into 
great American histories, you know, with the Hound Dogs ad where they were looking for D. Huddleston. I remember Ailes called me up at home and said, I've got, and I kept telling him we were doing well with the groups, but we were starting to, to decline with a white concerted Democrat. And if we get below 30%, we're cooked. So I started having a one-to-one conversation, not with McConnell, but with Ailes all the time, because we were in the uh, the final stages of the last two months or so of the campaign. I remember him calling me back and we had a great relationship and he would say, Lance, I'm probably going down in the well pretty deep for this, but I'm getting ready to do something that I think is going to blow your socks off. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I went over to the Hee Haw program, hired some of the people from that National Tennessee program, and we're going to take this memo and match it up where D. Huddleston has been missing votes. And he got Larry McCarthy, who was one of his aides, to be the guy that held all the blue tick hounds going through drugstores and grocery stores trying to find the huddles. And as you know, this, I think, became the most famous ad probably in American politics. It did. It suddenly reversed the decline of the white concerted Democrat because they saw this ad that reminded them not only of Hee Haw, but D. Huddleston in a three-piece suit looking like a Washington politician. They were trying to find D. Where have you been? You missed all these votes. So it was humorous. It was catchy. It was dynamic. Ailes told me one time they got the wrong kind of hound dogs and had to recut all the ads because they got hound dogs that weren't Kentucky type of hound dogs and had to get another group of dogs. I mean, it was kind of funny the way they finally put it all together. And then we got into where we were suddenly competitive based upon that ad with a segment that we'd been watching very carefully, but we were not getting to 50%. We got it up to around 47, 48 and we're holding steady. And it looked fabulous that we were taking this uh, relatively nondescript candidate and McConnell, and he was a programmed candidate. He followed this research extremely well, literally went over every page just, just to make sure he understood it all correctly. But we didn't know how we'd get across to 50%. Now, Reagan is doing well and ends up winning with 61% in Kentucky. So let us not forget that rising tide. But how are we going to get McConnell that last two or three points? Ailes called back about 10 days before the election and said, I'm going to ruin one of the rules of politics that you don't go to the well too often, but nothing else has worked. I'm going to do another ad on D. Huddleston, and this time we're going to catch him. I said, okay. They got a lookalike to Huddleston in a three-piece suit running across a field with somebody with a leading about 10 or 12 hounds chasing him across his field. And the last part of that ad, and a lot of people didn't see this ad because they remembered the first one as being the one that kind of blew the socks off everybody. The second ad probably did it. Most people don't even know about it because it only ran the last week. But Huddleston had to crawl up a tree in a three-piece suit with about 12 hounds barking at him at the bottom. Announcer said, We finally caught you, D. Huddleston. You've been missing votes and not paying attention to Kentucky. We finally got you. Then vote Mitch McConnell, U.S. Senate. Ever since this race began, D. Huddleston has been running away from his record. But now Kentucky is closing in. Against school prayer, give away the Panama Canal. D. runs and D. hides. But we're going to catch him. It's time you face your record. No wonder he's running from his record. But he can't run forever. We got you now, D. Huddleston. Switch to Mitch McConnell for U.S. Senate. That did it, in my opinion.
perhaps maybe the most famous U.S. Senate advertisement of all time. One other race I wanted to mention that became famous specifically because of the polling is a California gubernatorial you did in the 1980s, which gave rise to a phenomenon known as the Bradley effect. Can you talk through that race from your front row seat, but also how people should think about the so-called Bradley effect nearly four decades later? Duke Majin, the attorney general of California, uh, was running on the Republican ticket for governor. 82 didn't look like a great year, as you know. Duke Majin, I guess he was he was Armenian and was very touchy about certain kinds of prejudice and so forth. And, and he did make it very plain to everybody that he was going to run the general election. So there was no black, white, no Armenian, non-Armenian type of emphasis to anybody's campaign. We were going to be high and mighty on that. And everybody agreed to it, like signing a contract. But this was the first major Democratic governor's candidate that was black. The entire Democratic Party in 82 was out there in California. I'm not kidding. If you looked at anywhere the Democrats were meeting, you would see uh, the license plates from all over the country helping Bradley win. And he was a great candidate, mayor, police chief, track star, All-American in college, UCLA. He should have won. One of the things that happened that most people don't realize is how did Duke Majin win? Part of it was the Republican Party had the finest absentee vote mail project, I guess, in the country at that time. Big state, hard to get everybody together. And so the state party, you'd have to give them a lot of credit, had spent a lot of time and money making sure their absentee vote program was the best in the country. In fact, that's how Duke Majin won. He won several days later when all the absentee votes were counted. Compare that to today, by the way. <laughs> Democrats absolutely ignored absentee votes. They thought they could get powered across in certain precincts. Uh, the Valley wouldn't hurt them that bad, and they would win this race. So they were counting on Tom Bradley being the first black Democratic governor in the United States. And he lost. And one of the things that he lost was in the last 10 days, once again, I don't see this much in the history books, but we were all there on the front lines. We knew we were behind, never were ahead had no idea of how to factor in the absentee vote at this point. And this is a very private thing, but I don't mind telling you now. Once again, being fairly close to Ailes, I called him up near the end of the campaign, and I noticed that Como had upset Ed Koch, the mayor of New York City, for governor of New York. And I said, how did that happen? Everybody, the media thought Koch would win because he's mayor of the largest city and on and on. And he said, well, upstate New York really doesn't like New York City. And Como played it right down the line and made Koch kind of the issue as a mayor of New York City only. And so that's how he got upset. I thought that was interesting. So I fly to California literally that same week, and I sit down with our guys, and I said, um, you know, a lot of people are voting, particularly Republicans, in L.A. metro area because they think Bradley was a good police chief and he'll keep things stable and keep things from uh, having any riots or whatever. There was a lot of that in the data. And so they were voting for Bradley. We uh, made a point once again, using populism with geographical emphasis rather than any kind of other cultural emphasis, but geographical, they went out and got postcards from a CVS pharmacy that had a lot of postcards from, like, for tourists from around the state of California, put together a 30-second ad, last 10, 15 days of the campaign, and the ad showed pictures of anywhere from San Diego to Eureka photographs of these postcards. And basically the message of the whole campaign was that George Duke Majin wanted to be governor of all the cities of California, not just one. That's all we said about Bradley and about LA. And that resonated in such a way that we saw the tracking data start moving. 
once we put in, I guess, several million dollars worth of advertising. Near the end, Bradley people thought they had it won. It's a big year for the Democrats, they thought. We basically took the geography psychology and turned it around on Bradley that he was just doing what Como must have suggested about Koch. And believe it or not, even though we knew we were close in the tracking, we were close, maybe one point, two points behind. But, uh, we had no idea that the absentees would come in as strong as they did. And we had no idea that ad would turn a lot of people around in the L.A. area as well as other parts of California. And we were supposed to lose again in 86, but we were the incumbent. 86 was not a good Republican year. And we can talk about that, too, because it's part of the same continuum from 82 to 86. But this is really important. I think one of the great teaching moments for me in, in my career. Ailes was looking at the Duke Majin re-election, which was OK, but nothing great. But remember now, we had those toxic waste sites all over the country. And there was something like 21 toxic sites that were listed by EPA in California. The Democrats put a environmental initiative on the ballot, which would bring out all the environmentalists. And Bradley wasn't going to get caught like he did last time. And Ailes sized it up. And this is March of 86. Ailes said, uh, we're going to be beaten if we don't do something like a flanking move right now. He persuaded Duke Majin and his staff. We did a major television buy in March of 86, long before the campaign had developed at all. And Bradley's people are all kind of licking their chops that they're going to win this one this time. But Ailes bought over, I don't know, several million dollars worth of ads on the environment, where we talked about the three, not the 21, just the three toxic wastes that Duke Majin had cleaned up as governor in the past three years, taking credit. And it drove the Democrats crazy. We we're told that Bradley's people went out and borrowed a ton of money to counter it, to talk about all these other toxic wastes. And so for about March, April, and May, the campaign for governor is all being waged in spring, all on the environment. Now, what we had as a rejoinder, and I must tell you, it was a good one. Bradley, when he was mayor of L.A., twice was cited by EPA for dumping city waste in the Santa Monica Bay and had never done anything about it. It's probably too costly or whatever, but it was never treated. Our ad, right after we had spent two weeks on the air about how great we were on the toxic waste, and another two to three weeks where Bradley was hitting us back, once again, way in advance of the election, we sucked him into a trap, and we put our last ad on, probably around June 1st, that said that Bradley had been fined by the government, and EPA, for not doing anything in Santa Monica, and how can you run for governor if you can't clean up your own backyard? We won going away because we redefined the entire race around the environment. And Bradley never, they had a hard time paying those notes back. We sucked them into spending too much money too early. We sucked him into the environmental race, which they thought they owned. And uh, Duke Majin was able to win. And it was one of the best teaching moments in my career I've ever seen. And Ailes gets a lot of credit for it. And the idea that, and this would have been the 82 race, The it sounds like the idea the so-called Bradley effect. Bradley was up big and then underperformed the polling dramatically, and there was a racial tinge to this. It just sounds like your data showed it was pretty much a 50-50 race going into the right. election. Your guy wins by a point or two, not seeing any dramatically different result than what would have been anticipated purely from the polling. Yes, and I didn't treat that enough earlier, but I'll do it now. Once again, we were forewarned by Duke Majin himself that we had to be very conscious. And one of the big things that happened in that race, about 10 or 15 days before the election, uh, Bill Roberts, who was part of the famous crowd of Spencer Roberts, was running Duke Majin's campaign. So you had some of the top major league players in the United States helping Duke Majin out. 
somehow, some press conference, Bill Roberts got pulled into a question that he thought that a lot of people wouldn't say anything about voting for Bradley, but it would probably be hidden in the, in the absentee votes or something like that. And something that was saying they thought there was a little extra there for Duke Majin that you couldn't pick up in the polling. Well, it was said in an academic way, but the way it was reinterpreted by the press, it forced Duke Majin to fire Bill Roberts. How often do you fire your campaign manager, particularly one that's kind of like a Rocky Marciano type uh, legend in his own time, fire him and still be able to win? Well, we all got pulled in. I flew in immediately. Everybody flew in. We mapped out that geographical strategy that I'd heard from Ailes in, in New York. We didn't know anything about any kind of a, a black situation in that race at that point at all. Now, one thing I did measure in tracking, and I was asked to Washington to the Center of Political Studies to talk about some of the racism that people were alleging in some of these races. We would take people who said they were undecided in California governor's race. Pretty hard to be undecided, by the way. It was such a dramatic difference between the two candidates. But we would say, um, if you're undecided, are there one or two reasons why you are still undecided? It was less than 2%. It was, let's say it's 2%. We would have undecided where we would register um, during the interview a hostility toward the question. In other words, saying, you know, that's none of your damn business. We registered that. We found about a little bit less than 2%, but a lot of them we've, we dug into later weren't even voters. So I don't think there was a, any kind of a Bradley effect, even though we were uh, isolating it, trying to find it to see if, if that was going to hurt us or not. By and large, the people that really stirred up the issue was Merv Field that ran the California poll. He was a big Democrat, did all the polling for the papers, and basically said that Duke Majin was going to lose and Bradley was going to be the governor. And his last survey showed that Bradley couldn't lose. And then after the election, they asked Murfield why his data was so off. Remember, we have tracking nightly showing it a much closer race, almost right at 50-50. And he was trying to show it a six or seven point win. And so his excuse after the election, which hurt him public relation wise with a lot of people that knew the race and knew the data, he just blamed it all on this so-called black reverberation or whatever you want to say, where somehow people lied to us in the polling. Other surveys were found out that had been done by other people that did not show what Murfield said. And pretty much by the Center of Political Studies conference in D.C. a few months later, it all was pretty much put to bed as just talk and not empirically based. And yet, years later, when Obama gets on, they revive it. And remember, I wrote an article, I think, for the National Journal or somebody saying uh, this has just gone too far. It's insulting the American voter. We have not found that yet, and we don't think we're finding it even now. Now that Obama won easily two times in a row, I think we put that to bed. Lance, what do you think separates a really strong pollster from the rest of the pack? What is the X factor? When I went into the field, part of a different era, different cultural context. But when I went into research, I really wanted to be properly prepared. And, and so was Teeter. Teeter had a master's degree in public administration. Worthland had a PhD in economics. And I had my master's degree in actually voting behavior. So we all had gone the extra step in terms of graduate work. I'd already published a book on ticket splitting. And then I went to the University of Michigan Survey Research Center, studied under Les Kish. He was a great statistician on sampling. And Charlie Cannell, who was a great questionnaire design psychologist, I did my work at the Census Bureau, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, before I went into business, I really wanted to make sure I'd hit all the demographic, voting, and other types of independent variables that go into how people vote. And then also, I have, can't forget, I worked for Dick Worthman for three years in California and helped on the Reagan 
data. I was a project director for the 76 polling uh, effort that Reagan did not win, but it was pretty first-class insurgency. So I did all that and then finally started my firm. And only I started my firm in Texas. I had a philosophy, as you've already described, but there were a lot of Reagan people in Texas who got in touch with me by word of mouth or whatever over, over my career and said, we really want somebody in Texas we think Texas is getting ready to flip. Six or seven uh, Democratic committee chairmen are all retiring. We're getting close on the governor's ballot. Tower got reelected again in, in 72. Graham got elected in 84. A Democrat, he became a Republican. But we think the whole state's getting ready to boil over. And we're tired of buying Chicago, New York City type polling for Texas. Can you please come down here and start a company? Joked at him and I said, uh, economics was one of the hardest courses I ever had in college. I don't know why I do it. And they said, well, we'll take care of all that. So I was set up in the business by a number of Reagan people in Texas. Texas pretty strong and active, as you know, and during the Reagan era. I was set up to come pick any city you want, start a company, we'll, we'll invest and put money behind you so we can get this company rolling. And guess what? By 77, I came here, and by 78, we elected both Tower and Clements governor of Texas. The gold rush was on after that in terms of turning Texas red. So I couldn't have been here any more perfect time, give some people credit for making sure I came back home and was able to not only participate, but also enjoy a tremendous takeover of the Republican Party in this state. We talked earlier about your embrace advocacy for certain types of populism that maybe was not natural to uh, the Republican Party of the 50s and 60s. That was an outgrowth of uh, the Midwest, was an outgrowth of the Northeast. But early in the 2016 cycle, even before the Iowa caucus, you were writing pieces suggesting that Trump's general election prospects were being taken too lightly, that Trump had a path through the Midwest to 270 electoral votes, which of course becomes very prescient to how the 16 election generally shakes out. What were you accurately seeing in Trump that so many others were missing? I'd written uh, two books that I thought were pretty important after I've retired, if you will. One was in 2013 about the changing demographics in the country and how the Republican Party better get, get on the ball. So there was a call to arms for Republicans to look at their data, re-infuse uh, their strategy to take in more different considerations like Hispanics, et cetera. And that book, you know, went out. I don't know if anybody read it or not. And then in 2015, my co-author and I, Stephen Helgeson out of Albuquerque, we decided to write another book. Here we are in the presidential race. We won in 14. Too often we win these midterm elections and we don't have this durability or the strategy to bake into the next presidential race some of the best strategies that we learned in the midterms. So our book was built around how Republicans should win in 2016. This book came out in 15. The idea was that we, if we took the same old type of established Republican, this goes back to my so-called philosophy, as you call it, if we take the same type of established Republican like Romney, et cetera, we're going to lose because the media centers of power in D.C., both government and business, and I could go on and on, have got this pretty well locked in. And if you don't come in as an, an outsider, independent, we know a lot of people try that. They're not very successful. But if you don't have a very strong outsider come in and question the entire system, we're not going to win. It will basically squeeze to death over time. 
Trump hadn't even announced when that book came out. And by the way, we did a lot of electoral college research on where it would take to win, did a number of scenarios in that book. But we had about six different scenarios how Republicans can win in 16 based upon certain states falling in the right direction. So one of them had to do with this, you're alloying the Midwestern states with the Southern states. And we kind of showed how that would work, how you could win that way if you really got busy and had an outsider and just put the book out. Later, Trump announced, I think a month or so after that book was published, So I'm deliberating all that, and I get called by Fox News to write an article about the presumption was when they called me was this Trump character is going to ruin the Republican Party. They can't win. And I said, well, I'm not so sure about that. And they said, really? Well, can you write something up like that? And I said, "Okay, I'll give it a shot. So I wrote up an article in, what was that? Very early January. It was basically a way that he could win. I didn't go into any kind of criticism of the other Republican candidates. I just said, here is a path that could win. And if they're smart enough, they'll consider it. Who read it, who didn't, I don't know. But looking back, I knew we had a philosophy of how it would, what kind of candidate it would take. I knew there was geopolitical rationale for putting that across on the Electoral College. And it turned out that Trump went against the entire Republican Party in that primary and was able to win. He took the Republican Party over, even though we know over time, 25% of the Republican Party never bought into it. And is that Trump movement, sitting here in 2022, where the Trump movement has taken over the Republican Party, is this Trump movement a natural outgrowth of the populism you were talking about in the 70s and 80s? Or is this a different strain altogether? No, no, it's all a continuum. There's no doubt about it. If you go back to the Tea Party, you go back to other types of movements, whether it's Ross Perot, et cetera. All this has been out there. Now, we say Trump took over the party. He's got about 40 percent. We know from data that they think it's a Trump Republican Party, not just a Republican Party. But the other side, 60 percent, they're all diffused. There's no certain Republican candidate that's involved even with a uniform on, much less waging war. So he can kind of dominate because he's got the most massive amount pulled together at the moment. But that outsider questioning the system, saying that both parties are remiss, all the new voters that are coming into the electorate, you put it all together. History, the continuum I just mentioned, some of the outsider philosophy that's been in America from day one. Remember, it was Jefferson that called John Adams in the famous 1800 election, called him a monocrat, saying that he wanted to bring back the uh, new republic to be more on a monarchy basis and do more business with England. And we had a totally different view. Jefferson, you talk about the ultimate outsider. My God, in 1800, he was everything, everything that John Adams wasn't. And he won. And that's the, they say, the first big realignment election we had in the country was 1800 maybe 1836 later with Jackson. What about Jackson? Let's talk about him a little bit. He was a frontier lawyer, very rough around the edges, even carried a bullet up in his shoulder, even into the presidency and never took it out. One tough dude, and he was able to remake America with so-called new age of democracy with the frontiersmen finally getting to play in American politics, not just New England merchants. But that was another huge outsider revolution. And so we really haven't had one of that type until Perot, Tea Party, things like this has been happening lately. Trump is basically just with his mind and mouth, just took advantage of what was already there. I was just thinking we beat an incumbent in Wyoming in 1976 that was just beginning to get involved. I was kind of sent by the Reagan firm out to Wyoming thinking they didn't have a chance to win. Gail McGee was a strong conservative Democrat with a good record, head of the Post Office Civil Service Committee. 
and always was very conservative during election year and fairly moderate the rest of the time. And it was going to be difficult. Malcolm Wallop was a state senator, pro-environment, fairly young and coming in from the outside, even within his own party. How are we going to beat McGee? Well, the first thing we did was quickly to show how much a piece of mail cost when he became chairman of the Civil Service and Post Office Committee and then started putting stamps on the envelope for the rest of the years he had been there and it kind of shocked everybody in Wyoming how he had allowed stamps. <laughs> as mundane as that, the amount of stamps it took to mail compared to when he became chairman kind of shocked people that he really hadn't d- done much of a job in Washington. And the one that really got him, though, was a famous ad, too, that's, I think, equivalent to some of the hound dog ads of Ailes. It showed an old cowboy getting ready to go out to brand the cattle out on the range. He looked like he was about 75 or 80 years old, good old cowboy, and he couldn't believe what Washington, D.C. was now doing. He said, for example, I'm getting ready to go out and brand these cattle, and this is what I have to take out on the range now. And he turned the horse around and there was a porta toilet lashed to that horse on the other side, a porta toilet, you know, about six feet tall. And he said, this is what OSHA is doing. They're making us do all this. Washington is just out of control. Vote for Malcolm Wallop. Everywhere you look these days, the federal government is there telling you what they think, telling you what they think you ought to think, telling you how you ought to do things, setting up rules you can't follow. I think the federal government is going too far. Now they say, if you don't take the portable facility along with you on a roundup, you can't go. We need someone to tell them about Wyoming. Malcolm Wallop will. Fantastic ad. It hit all the points in terms of the outsider, government's going too wrong, pushing the uh, Trump, Ross Perot, Tea Party kind of attitude about what's going on in D.C. And Malcolm Wallop upset Gail McGee in 1976 in a complete shocker in Wyoming. So this Trumpism is no different than what we've seen since 1976 or else. Keep that in mind. To someone just getting a foot in the door now, has an ambition, would like to advance in polling and data, what advice do you find yourself giving to people who want to be the next generation of Lance Torrance? Keep in mind, when I started, it was very few people in the playing field. Just Bob Teeter and Dick Worthlin. And nowadays, you might have 25 or 30 in each party that claim to be pollsters. Remember, you have to have an intersection of opportunity and preparedness to go anywhere in life. And a lot of people missed the opportunity, and a lot of people had the opportunity but weren't prepared. So you have to have those two meet just correctly. Part of that is academic credence all the way through. There's enough great political science departments today, enough survey research data being used in the classroom, that there's no reason anybody that wants to be a real true political pollster, and I don't like the word pollster, I like survey research, but technically when you move from the academic side of survey research into campaigns, you're now becoming a very well-educated political engineer. And there's been some people who suggested that we ought to have a separate courses in American politics taught in the universities on political engineering, which would be campaign management at all. But in that respect, you better have a graduate degree in statistics, demography, etc., to be able to say, I can walk through the front door. Now, a lot of people have that, and a lot of people are in the paper occasionally saying they're a pollster for this or that, and they're not very good because they didn't have any campaign experience. Somewhat unusual, I work for the State Republican Party, the National Republican Party, the U.S. Census Bureau, the Kennedy Institute of Politics, and Reagan's polling firm before I ever thought about starting a company. Probably in today's age, probably waited a little later than I should have. Who knows? 
But I would say this, you better get a winning campaign under your belt or you're not going to go anywhere. That's tough. When I got heavily involved in the 66 Tower race, everybody in Washington wanted people that had won in 66 to come to Washington. People that won with Percy and Reagan and Rockefeller as well as Tower. So I got identified with a winning race. I do think that's important. And thirdly, you have to pick and choose when you want to make your move toward Washington. Can't do much unless you've been some kind of service in Washington. It could be on a Senate staff. It could be the RNC. It could be with some lobbying firm that where they did a lot of politics. But you better have the D.C. connection, in my opinion, or else you'll be a regional pollster doing small market work. So that's my overview. And for the record, can you pronounce your last name for people? It's a little unusual. It's pronounced like it has an O in it, but it's spelled with an A, and it's technically a hard A. It's really the Gaelic pronunciation, so it's Torrance. But listen to this. The Torrance company that I founded and bequeathed to the group in D.C. there, Ed Goes, et cetera, they changed the name to Terrence just because people couldn't pronounce it right. I can call up there laughingly and say, who's calling, please? I'll say Lance Torrance. And they'll say, now, how do you spell that? They don't even know it's me. <laughs> They've conveniently changed the linguistics to Terrence. And that's okay. That's They're the ones who put the money behind the purchase of the company. But it is kind of funny. You can pronounce it any way you want. We've only scratched the surface. I didn't get to John Conley. I didn't get to Al Simpson. I didn't get to Reagan 76, McCain, a really deep dive on Texas. Maybe there can be a part two, but this is a great deal of fun. Lance Torrance, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.